You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. Good morning, church. If you have a Bible, grab it. Turn to James chapter 5. Yes, my name is Cody. I'm one of the pastors here and have the opportunity to open up the scriptures for us regularly and excited to do so. And uh, we're actually going to be finishing uh, our uh, walking through the book of James, which we've titled Our Faith in Action. And we normally walk through books of the Bible together because we want to see what God has to say. And if you are uh, a guest today and don't have a Bible, you can grab one. Uh, There's a black one in front of you. Uh, grab it and turn to page 1073. And as Pastor Ryan said, happy Mother's Day. Mothers, we're so thankful for you uh, and what, who you are in our lives. And we're thankful for the opportunity to celebrate you today. Uh, as a church, we talk a lot about this church being a family, a family of God. And there are times in which we think about the church as an institution, we think about the church as an organization, we think about the church maybe in a few different ways, but at the end of the day, the way that the Bible speaks about the church is that the church is a family. So do you see these people, all of us in the room, as your family? How we view one another will dictate how we treat one another, how we love one another, how we give to one another, how we pray for one another, and how we will go after each other. We know that there's nothing we can do about who we're related to. Uh, My brother will always be my brother. There's nothing I can do about the blood there. And so we treat each other in light of that, that he will always be my brother. But there are times in which we can treat the church as not our family. And so this morning, James, as he ends his letter, what he's showing us is this is what a healthy family of God looks like. This is what it means to be together. This is what it means to run after Jesus together. And so that's why here at Covenant Hope, we talk a lot about being a family. And so as we walk through the text this morning, these few verses, here's what we're going to see. James outlines two proper responses that a healthy church takes to address temptation and sin. And if you're a disciple today, being a part of God's family means more than just coming and attending, but it means growing in your faith. And so we talk about growing in our faith as a disciple. And if you are a disciple today, here's what is what you need to know. Our faith as disciples and as a church family is demonstrated through the prayer to God and pursuit of one another. Our faith is demonstrated by praying to God and pursuing one another. We come to this last section of the book of James and you may be wondering, why does James end it this way? One, he understands that there's a need to pray because these Christians, as we've talked about the last couple of weeks, as Pastor Ryan uh, told us last week and even the week before, these Christians are suffering 
oppression. They're suffering trials and temptation. Right? So in the context of James, what we've seen this whole time is that we've seen a faith that has, is stronger than any opposition, anything in the world that comes at us. And so James shows us a faith that actually shows us how to live and shows us how we speak and how we act and what we do with our money and how we're patient and how, what wisdom is when we walk in faith in Christ. But these questions still may remain. Although we may be suffering, there may be hardship, there could be oppression. The question is, how do we continue? How do we maintain healthy? How do we maintain a healthy family in the midst of a broken world? We pray for one another. We pursue one another. We've seen this throughout James. There's a temptation to, to lose faith. In the midst of suffering, right? There's a, there's a temptation in, a, in an uncertainty of health to begin to blame or to begin to, to shift our thoughts from God. There's a, there's a temptation also to straying, to leaving this family. But James calls us not to give up. He calls us to continue. Right, so these trials that this church that James is writing to is they are experiencing these trials together. And James says, if you remember back in chapter one, verse two, he says these are trials of many kinds. Because of sin in our broken world, there are lots of different kinds of trials and temptations. So we are called to seek after the Lord and run after him. Not to focus on what we get, even healing but to focus on a family, a community that helps us walk in faith together. So this morning, here's what I want to show you. As we walk through uh, these verses, I want to show you two responses that a healthy church has to temptation and sin. Two responses to temptation and sin. Number one, prayer demonstrates faith in an all-powerful God. Prayer demonstrates faith in an all-powerful God. Look there at verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone among you cheerful? He should sing praises. James begins with, uh, with his instruction. He, he's telling us, commanding us to the individual that they are to pray. And this highlights these two extremes that we see here in the verse. Right? Some may be rejoicing, but some may be suffering. The response is the same. We're called to pray. Right? It's not just that we uh, should pray. James, this word here, most likely means you ought to pray. You must pray. And this word prayer is used 80 times in the New Testament. 80 times in the New Testament. And it's the main response to suffering. And James specifically has the idea of illness in this suffering or experiencing physical difficulty. Another brother or sister may not be suffering the same way, but they may actually be rejoicing. They may be happy. They, things may be going well. And so their response is to what? Sing praise. Think of a psalm or a song today. It's still the same thing. It's this instance of speaking and proclaiming to our God. In both of these instances, the believers are called to pray, to look to God, 
And whether they're suffering or rejoicing, they're called to pray to God. And this response is a response of faith working in a community of disciples. Prayer and praising are both forms of speaking to God. What we just did, what we, when you sing, as I've told you a couple times now over the last recent months, I love standing in front hearing you sing. That's a way that we proclaim the goodness of God to Him. It's a way we speak to Him. Prayer is us coming every week and we, we think through what does it mean to rightly order our prayers. Prayer is a revolutionary tactic in a broken world. Prayer is a revolutionary tactic that we have access to. And it's not passive, but it works. And James wants you to see the power of prayer, but particularly the prayer to an all-powerful God. God is the one who's all-powerful. It's not about the words we say. It's not about what we ask for, per se. It's about the God that we pray to. It doesn't matter how, many, how often you say it. doesn't matter if you are scheduled. doesn't matter if you use as many words as you can or the best words or the most long words that you can think of. That doesn't matter. What matters is that there's an all-powerful God who hears you. And that's why it works. But now James gets specific with verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? You should call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So if you think back uh, in 1 Thessalonians, right, Paul tells us to pray without ceasing in all circumstances. James, what James does is he expands that. He breaks those circumstances down, whether you're rejoicing or you're suffering. And now he drives to a specific issue, a common issue in the first century, which would have been sickness. They didn't have the medicine that we have today, so there are lots of things that we go to the doctor, get medicine, are fine. These sicknesses could have led to serious injury. And this word that James uses for sick means to be physically weak. It could be a disease or disability. It's a concrete physical illness, sickness. And if someone finds themselves in this position, James encourages them to call out, to reach out to the elder's of the church. And notice here, calling out means that this sick person probably can't get up and go to them. They can't just go see them. Now, they're probably bedridden and helpless, and their illness is so serious, it's probably life threatening. The elders here that James speaks of are the pastors of the church. This is who see uh, here have pastors, me and Ryan, are, they're called out. We are called out and commissioned to lead the church in the task of disciple making. We're called to shepherd the church, that, that word pastor there, which is why we use that term. We're called to shepherd and pastor the church body. There to be examples of faith and holiness, which matter here when James begins to explain what's going on. And so it would be natural for the elders, the pastors, to pray for these, those who are sick. One, because they are an example of faith and holiness. But also, they represent the church family. As your pastors, we've been called out and commissioned to actually represent you, to actually help the church grow and move forward. And so, this call to prayer for James is not just for the leaders. This is a very communal act that James says the pastors, those who represent the people, are called to go and pray over those who are sick and can't get out of bed. This is community-focused. 
I feel like over the past three or four weeks, James has been hitting this over and over and over again. That we cannot walk in this life without living in community. So what should they do though? What should the pastor's elders do? They're first to pray. They're to pray over the sick person. Prayer is the first and foremost command in the sentence. It stands as the primary act and action, and it's what they're directed to do. James also commends the the elders to anoint the sick person with oil. Understand that this anointing is under the command of prayer. The anointing is not the main act. It's not the main command. The oil doesn't have any specific healing power, and it probably doesn't have anything in it. It's not the essential oils that you buy at the store or from whoever. Right? That's not what we're talking about. This oil is not for healing purposes. The oil is used as a symbol to set the sick person aside and set them apart for God's special attention and care. This is what we see throughout the Old Testament. And so what the elders do, they they anoint someone who is sick, what they are saying, God, please recognize this person. Please care for them. We need you to act and respond. In some ways, it's a ceremony. But notice here too, the elders are, are called to anoint in what? In the name of the Lord. It's neither the elders nor the oil that heals the sick person. It's the Lord. It's the Lord God. When we invoke the name of God, when we invoke the name of the Lord Jesus, we must take into account His will and not ours, which will be important here as we continue. Look at verse 15, continue along. The prayer of faith will save the sick person. The Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. James wants us to understand the extraordinary power of prayer in our lives. He says that this prayer, that is with confident expectation, that you have confidence that God will not only hear you, but He will respond to your prayer. And He will actually save the sick person. Again, this sickness is physical. Just like it was in verse 14. And, if I'm honest with you, the way that this reads, it seems possible for this sin to be caused by an illness in your life. You may say, that seems kind of odd. But think about it this way. Some of you may deal with anxiety or depression, and you've probably dealt with the physical effects of that on your body. I have. I've felt the physical effects of anxiety in my body. I've had to go to the doctor, and they tell me, you're fine. And I'm like, I'm not fine. You, you, I think you need to fix me. What, something's wrong here. But what, the, what it tends to be is there's anxiety causing physical pressure in my body. And so I think that's exactly, there's these kinds of sicknesses that happen because we are not trusting in who God is. Now let me be very clear. When I was a kid, I would think about when I was sick, I was like, God, what have I done? That's not what's going on. James is not saying there's some secret sin for you to go figure out. That's not what's happening. There's no secret sin for you to go try to, you know, have a, a, you know, clues and a scavenger hunt to figure out so that you confess that to God. That's not what's going on. What James is saying is there's something in your life that could be potentially causing you to be sick, and you need to confess that. It's not unknown. Now, we also have to understand what this word saved means here in verse 15. It's not eternal salvation. Why do I think that? 
James pairs the word with the phrase, the Lord will raise him up. This is exactly the phrase that Jesus uses often when he heals people in the gospel accounts. And so what Jesus does is he, he, lots of times he'll forgive their sins, but he actually calls them to rise and to walk. It's the same phrase. And so I think this is a physical healing, which means I believe that prayer can be called upon for physical healing. I think that's what James is saying. Now, just in these two verses, and we see in this passage, it's difficult to rightly understand. It, it can be difficult to understand what James is saying. It can be even more difficult to apply these verses. And as your pastors, Ron and I have talked and prayed this week, especially over James 5. Again, if we didn't preach the books of the Bible, this could be really easy just to skip over. But what we want you to know is that as we've talked about this, is this is difficult and you have, to, you have to see the tension here in the text. And you must seek the Lord and how to rightly apply this. So if you feel a desire that if you are sick to call us and to ask us to anoint you with oil, that would be fine. That would be totally fine. But if you don't, that's okay too. This is one instance in the Bible. I don't think we have to be commanded to anoint with oil. What's the main command? Prayer. But there's a question, right? Even deeper than that. If James is telling us to pray for the sick and expect God to work, which he is, shouldn't this always be the case? Shouldn't God heal all the time? What's the problem if someone doesn't get better? Is there a lack of faith? The problem with that is not the person's lack of faith, but who's praying over the sick person? The elders are. So then we have all kinds of questions about them. The problem with that idea is it leaves no room for the sovereignty of God. If we believe in such a way that this works, which we do, but if we think about it as on command, then we're actually removing God from the situation and not allowing His will and His sovereignty to reign. If the prayer of faith is defined so that we leave room for God's sovereignty to rule over ours, then the problem is resolved. But we, we also must not lose sight of what James commands us in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, which he said he calls us to ask. All right, sometimes God has chosen to give us certain good gifts only and if only we pray. Those two things, I think, are intention in the text. When we compromise the sovereignty of God, when we, we become close to claiming that if we just pray, everything will be done. We must hold intention rightly that we must pray because it works. Because we trust an all-powerful God. But it's not because we pray. It's because He responds to our prayer. And as I said, Pastor Ryan and I both want you to be good students of the Bible. You must deal with the difficulty here in the text. There is some here. But you must deal with that in the context of the whole Bible. Right? James is the only one that talks about anointing with healing. But Paul talks about even healing being a potential spiritual gift. And so there, there are things in the Bible which, which Alistair Begg calls there are main things, which we would say is the gospel, that Jesus came, He died, and He was raised, and that in Christ we can be reconciled to our Father. Those are the main things of the Bible. But there's also plain things. Plain things. And here there's some unplain things, but there's something that's really plain. And what's that? We're called to pray. And that prayer works. That's what we're called to do. 
And so if you take nothing away today, it's that you are called to pray. Why? Because you pray to an all-powerful God who works on your behalf. God may choose to heal you in this age, or He may not. But our hope is not in that healing. Our hope is in a healing that we will have a perfect healing in the age to come when Jesus returns. When our body is transformed and glorified and there will be no more illness, there will be no more sickness. Somewhere in our prayers, we have to find a balance between never expecting God to heal and requiring Him to heal. Jesus is the answer of this, right? Jesus is the example of this, right? He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane before His crucifixion. What does He pray? He asks the Lord, remove this cup from me. Remove this cup from me. Does God remove the cup from Him? No. And praise God He did not because that was in our salvation. And so prayer and God's will, we, we do that to seek out that will. But also what I want you to see here, church families, if you're struggling today, if you, lean, if you lean more towards just not praying, I want you to see the boldness that we have here. See the boldness that we can come to God. The promise of healing is needed, a needed correction for those of us who struggle and have trouble to believe that prayer actually works. And this is James' point. There's a danger for us to believe that prayer does nothing. There's a danger to believe that it doesn't matter what I say or what I ask for. This is why we need one another. Notice the sick person is never once, outside of verse 13, called to pray. We need each other. After that person prays, they're then called to ask the church family to pray for them. Pray boldly to a God who is powerful, who loves us and listens to us. And remember that God, yes, He cares deeply about this physical world and so much so that He's going to come back and He's going to renew it all. But He cares mostly about our eternal future. And so the things that happen in this life, God is using to make you more like Jesus. Faith in God produces expectation in a disciple that we believe God's going to work. And this causes us to pray. We trust God in the circumstances, even if the situation never changes one bit. Even if our request never comes, we still pray and we trust that this God is going to work. Because we've seen it in the gospel, we've seen it in Christ. We have all the evidence we need that our God is working on our behalf. Continue though in verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. James now tells us how these sins are forgiven. Even though this prayer in the context is for a physical difficulty potentially caused by sin, there is still a spiritual component to this prayer and to this process. Forgiveness is the spiritual effect of prayer. But notice how forgiveness comes. What does James say? Forgiveness comes in the context of confession. Confession should be a normal practice in the church and is generally needed for the health of a church. Confession, I think, is a practice that is lacking here in our Western churches. I think we as a church, we try to do this well. We, our Acts model on the second Sunday, we come to 
the Lord's word and pray to him and confess our sin. But I still think it's an area that we struggle in. That we actually struggle to actually confess our sin. If we want God to work, if we want to see him save people, then we must confess our sins. Because that's the beauty of the gospel, that there are weak people who have been made strong in the blood of Christ, that we now proclaim a message that is outside of ourselves. This has always been the precursor to God working, has it not? Has the the effects of revival not been because of there are people who have confessed their sin to one another and to God? And this revival is not for the good old days. This this revival is for people to be transformed in the image of Christ. To forsake the world and to pursue Christ as Lord of all things. I read this this week. Revival comes when people look at their own sin and seek to repent of those. But we live in a culture who tells us not to apologize. Tells us to be ourselves. But a healthy church is one that prays and understands that prayer is is actually working out confession in our lives together. Our confession and repentance of sin must lead us to pray for one another. Prayer and confession are the privilege and the responsibility of a church family. It's our responsibility. This word pray means to intercede, go to God on the behalf of others. Which means we need to know what's going on. This is true spiritual community. That we confess to one another, this is what I'm struggling with. And there are people who don't, are not judgmental about those things. And we actually embrace each other and we love each other. And we, we pray to God for each other. That's what a true spiritual family looks like. James mentions this phrase, one another, twice in the verse. The context, again, is speaking to the actions that the community takes as a whole. Right, the one another phrase tells us that we should have someone close enough to confess our sins to. It could be a pastor, but it could just be another church member. Or really could just be a friend or a mentor or a group. I know that a lot of our young guys have taken this very seriously. They call each other early in the mornings. They confess sin. They talk about what's going on in their lives. And they pray for one another. This is why we have a disciple-making pathway. Because there are there's steps for us to actually grow as a family of God. Right? A missional community is the first step. It's the first and right step for us to be involved together, to do life together, to eat together, to do mission together. That's the first and right step. And if you're not involved in that, then, I'm, then we are going to push you to that because we believe that this is where true community happens. This is where true confession happens. This is where true healing happens is in the context of life together. And then there are D groups where we hand down the faith, where we call each other to walk out what Jesus has said. Now let me be very clear. James is not calling us to, to confess our sin to everyone. He's calling us to confess our sin to someone. Right? We deal with, we deal with private sins privately, and we deal with public sins publicly. We're not here to blast ourselves out in front of the whole world. That's not what we're here to do. But what we are here to do is confess it. What's the result, though, of this confession and prayer? What does James say? Healing. We must not remove the physical component to this because we can't restrict God's working in the world to a specific time period. But we also understand that God cares about the physical 
He cares how He has made us, but He also, he also cares deeply about the spiritual. And, and James helps us understand that in some ways these two things are tied together. That we receive healing when we confess our sin and pray. And we confess our sin are then prayed for by someone else. That's what James, that's the picture of a healthy family that he's holding up for us. But why? You may still be wondering, why should I pray like this? Why should I, why should I confess my sin to someone else? Why should, why should they pray for me? James says the prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Prayer works. This is James' point. Even though it can be hard to rightly understand and apply this text here, James does not call us to pray in this way and call for prayer in such a way that we know that God's going to work, then it, then it weakens His command. James believed that prayer works. Prayer works because God works to answer our questions and our thoughts and most of importantly, our prayers. Prayer is powerful in its effect. What James is saying is that we actually have the opportunity to work at its effect is something that we do, so we must work it out. We must actually do it together. Prayer is a powerful weapon in the hands of humble disciples. Prayer is a, is a massive weapon. It's powerful in the hands of humble disciples. And notice the communal nature again of this prayer. We have the elders who pray. We have confession, which means we need someone to confess to, and we have one another. James makes it very clear that the Christian life should not be lived apart from community. James can't make it any clearer than that. And if you still can't believe that prayer works, if you still struggle to go to God in boldness, look at the example that James gives in verse 17. Like a great Jewish preacher, James uses an Old Testament hero. Look there, verse 17. Elijah was a human being as we are. That's a weird phrase for James to use. What James is saying is that Elijah is the same as we are. He is human like us. He is not some larger than life hero. Which we may struggle to believe, but that's what James is saying. And James says he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the land. All right, so James uses this example for us, but why? Why does he use this example? One, to show us that we're just like Elijah, that he's no different than us. But two, I think it's because in this particular circumstance, the sinfulness of Israel had caused Elijah to pray for there to be a famine because he wanted the goal of repentance and reconciliation to the Father. He wanted people to confess their sins and repent. And the prayer for rain was... Then he asked for rain so that it showed that God was still working, that God still cared about them. Look at verse 18. Then he prayed again and the sky gave rain and the land produced its fruit. The second prayer shows that Elijah expected God to lift the restrictions. Right? And so the rains came. The text seems to indicate that Elijah did not have to pray multiple times. He, he expected, he asked, and therefore it happened. And God responded to him. And so what James is saying is, you may think that Elijah is larger than life, but he's not. In the same way that he prayed, you can pray too. But what's the difference between us and Elijah? We have Christ. 
We have Christ. Christ is on the throne currently interceding on our behalf. So when there are times that we don't know what to say, when there are times when we don't know what to pray, we don't know how to help, we have a Lord and Savior who reigns today on His throne. And He's not just sitting there. He's interceding on your behalf. Praying for you. So yes, we're just like Elijah, but we have much more than that. We have the Lord Jesus who intercedes for us. And not only does God answer our prayers, even for physical healing, James highlights once again that we have a God that gives good gifts, which calls us back to chapter 1, verse 18. Everything we have, own, or rent is a good gift from God. We must not chalk up these things just to luck or circumstance or to the, to the, uh, to the stock market or to the housing market or to the job industry. God is at work. He works in our lives and we must not just think all oh, these are just happenstance. We should recognize that God is working in our lives. We should recognize that Christ is real and He's a person who cares deeply for us. We must act even in our own families that Jesus is a person that we want to honor and bless and actually live with. But two, there's a temptation here that we think we can, can control everything in this world. I was having a conversation the other day and just talking about, again, the farmer that Pastor Ryan rep, uh, talked about last week that James mentions the farmer is solely, solely helpless outside of God sending rain. But in our world, in the modernization and the industrial revolution, we can, we can mass produce crops and send them everywhere in the country, all around the world. And so we begin to forget just what God does, even to provide the most necessary of means, like vegetables and food. We can't control everything. And so maybe you're tempted to believe, I don't need this because I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I, have, I have medicine, I have the things I need, I don't need God. But that's not true. In fact, God has been working the whole time behind the scenes and we, we, we fooled ourselves in believing that He's not in control or that we have more control than we want to say. Without confession and repentance and prayer, we will not be a healthy church. Let me say that again. Without prayer, confession, and repentance, we will not be a healthy church. And that's our desire that we grow in godliness together. The effects of sin ravage our lives more than we ever want to say. But when the gospel of faith truly enters into our midst, our midst as disciples of Jesus, and when we pray for one another, it changes everything. It changes everything. But the question remains, what happens when we don't address sin this way? What happens when we don't address our needs this way through confession and prayer? People, people turn away. So look there at verse 19. It gives us the second response of a healthy church. Pursuit displays a family produced by the gospel. Pursuit displays a family produced by the gospel. Look at verse 19. My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, I want to stop there and explain what's going on. James does not end his letter with a goodbye or a prayer. James ends his letter as a call to action. And this is fitting. Right, James has called us to action over and over and over again. He has the most uh, commands, probably percentage-wise, out of any of the New Testament books. But why? 
Because he believes deeply that the faith that he has in Jesus Christ is an active faith. He believes deeply that his faith has changed him. It grows us into the family that God wants us to be. This action of pursuit, though, is crucial for the health of the local church. He he clarifies, he says we need it, that this action is needed in the body of Christ. This is what he means by among you. If anyone among you turns away. Our church family must be aware of those who will turn from the truth. This word strays literally means wonders. means being led astray by, by someone else or being led astray by others. Could be big, could be small. Is that they, they turn away from the truth. That they're not focusing on the gospel. What's, James quotes this in chapter 1, verse 18. The truth of the gospel. That's what James is saying here. Is that they're turning away from Christ. I want you to know that James believes this is totally possible in the church life. He thinks that this is possible. This, we can turn away. If we're honest, we know this. We've, we've seen this. We've, we've maybe even experienced it. We've maybe even felt it. But this is not full-on apostasy. This is not someone forsaking Christ totally. This is They are on the road to that. They have not abandoned the faith entirely, but they, they're close. And what, what many people will talk about when people leave out the back door of the church and that people slip off and we're, we never see them again. This is why we practice church membership. This is why we believe it matters to be committed to a family here. In two weeks, we're going to have another Membership Matters class. If you are interested in learning about who we are and what it means to be a member here at Covenant Hope, because we take this seriously, we believe it's important that people, we can't, we can't just let our brothers and sisters leave, but we must call them to repent. It's not, that just, it's not just that we want you to attend CHC on a Sunday morning, but we want you to belong here. We want you to feel like a family here. That's why membership matters. That's why the family matters. But James says there's hope, right? If someone turns him away, it's possible to turn a wandering person back then to faith in God's family. And this turn is probably done by a stronger believer, wisdom with kindness and compassion. And when they turn them back, they restore them to the community. Helping bring back wayward Christians securely into God's family may constitute one of the most neglected responsibilities of the church today. It may be one of the things that we miss out on. Too often when a person drifts away from their active involvement in a, in a local body, even from the faith, is due most of the time, this is uh, from something I was reading this week, is mostly because unresolved personal offenses within the congregation. If we as Christians spent even half the time talking about our concerns with other people and not complaining, but actually talking them in gentleness and love, we would far be more healthier together, individually and collectively. A family produced by the gospel pursues one another. Whether we were hurt or you were hurt, we pursue one another. Whether we are straying from the truth or whether you are straying from the truth, we go after each other. And that's the kind of family that we need. It's the kind of family that I desire that I will be with a family for 
forever. Look at verse 20. And let the person know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. The efforts of our, of our pursuit will produce restoration and faith. As James in his, ends his letter, once again, he lifts our eyes to the future. He's not just focused on the here and now and the present. He's focused on eternity. When we turn back a brother or sister from wandering, we save their soul. Right? And see the combination here, soul and death. What James is saying is we save them from eternal separation from God. From God's love and God's goodness and God's mercy and God's kindness. It is this pursuit that James says covers a multitude of sins. A church family is built back stronger when we pursue one another. The family rejoices when we turn back. One of our own. Much like the prodigal son, when his father saw him coming back, what does he do? He rejoices. And they celebrate. That's how the family is to respond to those who we turn back to the truth and to the gospel. May we be like that father. May we be a family that welcomes those who turn back to the truth. Welcome those who may have been hurt, but receive them back into the family. Those we may have hurt. That we confess our sins and we pray for one another and we pursue one another. It's easy for us to say in this time, in 2022, in this country, to say that we believe the gospel. It's easy to say that we love Jesus. But it's much harder to say what we believe, to live what we believe. We want to be a gospel-centered church, right, in belief, yes, but also in practice and in talk and in love. Not only, as readers of James, not only should we be concerned to do what he's asked, I think he's saying that we should be concerned that we see others do what he's asked. It's by sharing what James says that this conviction is indeed eternal death that's waiting people who turn away. James has this conviction that he believes that there's eternal death that's waiting people who turn away in their sin, away from the truth. And if we believe that too, shouldn't that motivate us to go and pursue our brothers and sisters? That we know that there's damage and destruction waiting for them? Shouldn't we go and pursue them? There's been lots of commands in the book of James. A lot of really good things, a lot of practical things that we need. I can't tell you how often the book of James has come to my heart and my mind as I've struggling or walking or trying to counsel or wisdom, whatever it may be. There's lots of commands here. God calls those who follow Christ to live a certain way. But here's the deal. You can't live up to these commands. You can't live up to them without Christ. He's the only one who has lived this way. He's the only one can make you live this way. He's the only one who has the power to transform you. He's the only one. And so if you don't know Jesus today, what I'm, going to, I'm going to ask you to ask yourself the question, have I submitted myself to Christ? Am I following Him as my Lord? That's the question today. If you have, though, then you are enabled to look like the family that James has been describing in five chapters here. 
you are enabled to walk out these together. You may not be strong enough individually, but we're strong enough collectively to be this kind of church, to be this kind of family. And it's only in the power of the gospel that we can do that together. This is the gospel that we hold out. This is the, the, the beauty of Christ that we hold out together. And that's what unites us. I pray that you will see that we are called to pray for one another and pursue one another with the help of Christ. Let's do that. Pray with me. God, we need you so very much. Would you make us into a family that, that prays together, confesses sin together, seeks repentance and healing together, that we pursue one another, that we speak the truth and hold the truth out as the standard so that we may all grow in godliness and be transformed in the image of Christ together. We need you. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.